people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Tak se ze mě stal čekat na chvíli krásky. Je to smůla, před půl rokem byla úplně jiná situace. Nic mi Nic ti nestejí. Ale něco Na mě se nekoukej. Zavinila si to sama, víš? Já jsem oběť, já, já. Zpátky! Vraťte to! Všechno zpátky! Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Jonathan Owen. Hello. Good to be back. Also back in the booth is Ms. Kat Ellinger. Hello. We kick off another September with a month filled with murder. Up first is Yuri Weiss's 1967 film, Murder Czech Style. The film stars our old favorite Rudolf Herzinski as Frantichek Pokorny. The film opens with him trying to commit suicide as he lays in a tub waiting for the inevitable. He recalls the events which put him there. We're going to be spoiling this film, so if you don't want anything ruined, you're just going to have to track it down, which might be a little bit of a challenge. I know DVD Lady has it, and maybe I can make it available to my Patreons. We'll find out. Jonathan, when was the first time you saw this film, and what did you think, sir? I think I saw it first about five years ago when I was researching piece I was doing on Vice's earlier film, 90 Degrees in the Shade. So it was just part of the research that I was doing for that. But I think I probably, when I first saw it, I liked it more, I think, than 90 Degrees in the Shade. Although I liked that too, but I thought this was such a fun film and also quite a touching film as well. And I think it treads that line nicely between being quite a touching or sympathetic character study, but also being like a fun new wave film as well. And I love Rudolf Roshinsky and this is his film in many ways. And I was just really dazzled by the ending as well. So yes, it was like an immediate like for me. How about you, Kat? Yeah, probably five years ago as well, as part of some research for the cremator yeah i was just trying to check out i'm going to call him big r because there's too much slavic going on in the surname there i'm going to call him the big r but i was researching his films around that period and obviously like you said at the beginning of this episode this one's quite a rare one but what treat i think it has a lot of parallels to the cremator and it's just before the cremator so people who've enjoyed The Cremator would probably enjoy the humour in this one as well. 
But I also love, and I was going to ask Jonathan about this because I know you do these associations, this slant that it has on like Commedia dell'Italiana, the Italian comedy style. And all obviously I love all of that genre. And this is deliberately minim- mimicking that because you've got Czech style in there, not Italian style because they did divorce Italian style, marriage Italian style, Caprice Italian style. There's like a bunch of them that came out in the 60s. But it's a lot, it is still in the vein of the Italian ones, which are often bittersweet. It's very ironic, very dark humour, oftentimes with a lot of tragedy. So it is in that vein, but also then with the Czech avant-garde, some really strange things happen in this film. So I really love it. I do really love it. I think a lot of Cremator fans would get a hell of a lot out of this film. I think that's really true. I think both in regard to the the Cremator and the Italian connections as well. Yeah, it was interesting that yeah, I saw it while I was researching 90 Degrees and then you saw it while you were researching the cremator and i almost feel that the character that krushinsky plays is the sort of the stepping stone from the character of kirka in 90 degrees to kopfer kingle in the cremator and again he's this kind of yeah like meek literally his name is meek yeah pecorni means like meek or humble yeah he's this sort of meek frustrated bureaucrat and then by the point of the cremator again he's a bureaucrat and of course again he's a murderer as he is here but it's like the I guess it's like the elevation or the apotheosis of the figure that he plays in murder check style. By the time you get to the cremator, he's like the kind of pen push or the sort of bureaucrat turned like destroyer of the world. So it's this nice kind of progression, I think, in this type of character that he's playing from film to film. Call them a murderer and he doesn't kill anybody in this movie officially. That's true. Yeah, that's true. I had no idea this was released by facets on vhs back in the day like i had one collection of their czech films when they were putting out things like oh gosh closely observed trains and just they had like this release of all these classics apparently they must have done a second wave of that and i never knew that so i missed out on this movie until this month for this podcast i had never seen this one before And wow, yeah, everything that you guys are saying checks all the boxes that I'm thinking of. Yes, it feels very much like a precursor to The Cremator. Yes, there are tons of influences, tons of similarities between this and 90 Degrees in the Shade. Yeah, this is like fits perfectly into those two areas. And wow, I was blown away by this movie. I had no idea what to expect and was just so pleased watching it and of course, for me, it's great. Got Rusinski, you've got Vladimir Menzik. I'm like, okay, sign me up. Like, whenever those two guys are in anything, I pretty much just will track down movies with those guys in them just to watch them perform. Menzik doesn't get a lot to do in this movie, but Rusinski is just amazing as always. And I love that we are in his head for this whole thing to the point where he's breaking the fourth wall towards the end. His boss, the chairman, is always breaking the fourth wall. He is always talking directly to us, the audience. I really like that, and I love this voiceover that Hrzynski gives us to take us inside of him and just show us what a poor schlub this guy is. Right at the beginning, he's just like, 
oh yeah, just uh, 6,235 days until retirement. It kind of reminded me of Jack Lemon a bit as well in the apartment, that sort of thing, but a more evil sort of twisted version. Because the Italian style ones, like divorce Italian style, you've got Marcello Mastroianni and the whole thing in that is he daydreams about killing his wife because they can't divorce. But within the Italian ones, it's really about this male arrogance or these childish men, but they're quite inflated and that's why they're so good. Whereas this comes more into line with the Jack Lemon apartment era where he really is a loser but you love him for that because you just think oh look at him and then he's got that wonderful fastidious performance style like the whole opening scene where he's arranging his suicide but he's moving the dirty socks out the way and he's just so great and there's no dialogue until the monologue kicks in which obviously makes it like the cremator you get his little monologue on things but you think, what is this guy doing? And he's picking these socks up and he's putting his shoes down. I could watch him all day. I could just watch him doing that, not even speaking. He's so good. It was interesting to read that New York Times review, which I think, as far as I can see, is the only kind of like English language published review of it, at least from the time. And that was baffling because for me, the worst part of that was it just says at the end how... The reviewer just hates Frushinsky. They just think he has no charisma or no presence. And to me... Who is this person? What, is the, what business do they have? You'll say it's Pauline Kale now or something. No, it was not <laughs> Kale. I don't remember who it was, but it was not Kale. I was wondering if it was John Simon, but it, it wasn't. But I was wondering if it was him because it, it had that kind of typically rude, you know, unpleasant sort of physical description that John Simon always used to do where he would actually physically attack the actors, which is what this review does. But yeah, I think it was not him. I think it was somebody who I, I'd not heard of before. Yeah, it was Howard Thompson. I've never heard of him from August 20th, 68. When he started comparing the movie to The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, I was like, oh boy, what am I in for here? This light frothy comedy is going to start up but thank god that comparison is one of the worst comparisons i've read it just completely missed the point as well because it says that uh, yeah the reviewer can't figure out why Elliot, the woman marries him and yeah that just shows that he'd missed the whole point of the story which is that it's this setup and i think when you get that kind of detail you realize yeah they just missed the whole point really so and for me, yeah, the criticism of Krasinski is just bizarre, really. I know that he'd not made the cremator by this point, so I guess he'd not really established any kind of international presence. But still, for me, in this movie, like you say, it's all about that, just that that physical presence that he has, just those wonderful punctilious gestures and just that sort of sad sack quality that he has. It's so, I don't like to say appealing, but it, it is Touching, endearing. endearing is the word, yeah. It's endearing. <laughs> you just think, if somebody's brought your reference is Walter Mitty, that's just so depressing. That was just so entirely depressing, but I guess it's a very American view because the humour in this, like all Czech films and the Italian ones, is very European, which is why Wilder was so good because he was European and had that same sort of cynical, really, 
But wondering why a woman would marry him. No, in Hollywood, women only marry for love, of course. They don't marry for any other reason. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking as well, like when you mentioned the apartment, and I was thinking, uh, and the fact that, yes, as you said, Wilder also was a Central European. And I think there's also that tradition of stories about the clerk, isn't there, or the office worker. Uh, this kind of, this put upon, frustrated, eternally overlooked figure and something that's there in Gogol, I guess it's there in Kafka. It's there in even something American, Bartleby the Scrivener, I guess. You have this whole tradition of stories about meek, put upon bureaucrats or clerks. And I I somehow, I don't know why, because I've never worked in an office really, but I find that kind of, I find an affinity with those sort of stories really. I just love that kind of character somehow. For me, it's such an archetype, I think. One of the other things that really made this movie feel similar to The Cremator is the Liska score and just the way that it's so avant-garde. When we've got some of these early scenes and there's this flute playing and it just feels like the flute's going for a walk just all over the place and just throughout the movie, the music is very avant-garde and just not necessarily a tune, but more of a feeling. And I really like that about this movie as well. The other thing I like here is that we are playing with voyeurism and dreams throughout the entire thing. Like even one of the first things that they do when we see him at the office, when we get to meet Vladimir Menzik's character, Emil, when we meet the other office workers is what do they do? Oh, Hey, the sexy lady across the way is taking off her clothes. Let's go take a look. And you constantly have Herzinski looking out windows, looking at other people one of his habits is to go to the movies. And I love that in the voiceover, he's, he points out this woman who's sitting next to him and goes, don't worry about her. She doesn't come back in the story. I do love that scene with the binoculars because we don't actually see much of what they're seeing. And it gets scandalous. They're like, come on, let me have a look. And they're like, oh, and then you're like, what are they looking at? And we know it's a woman, but we don't. I thought that was really fun. But it does do all this playing around with the notion of seeing and because then when it gets further on you're thinking is he imagining this or is something actually going on because it does make you doubt that this is a guy even when he gets married you think is this a daydream it constantly plays with what is real what is actually happening and I think that's wonderful go back to what you said about the score though i do love the jubilant car fire music it almost sounds like circus music like a demented sort of waltz isn't it that's really classic lishka you mentioned alice or alishka she is the girl of his dreams actually he's got two girls of his dreams there's one in the office who's i waited too long and this doesn't work and then when he's on this business trip it took me a long time to figure out this whole thing of the two offices and that you have to take a train to get from one to the other. I was like, where's he at now? So he's at this other office hanging out with the chairman and sees the gun. The boss is like, Oh yeah, you should go for this. Says, oh yeah, this is totally great. And so he starts going out with her and again, more like voyeuristic type things. Like he's looking at her through binoculars, even though she's just a few feet away He's taking photos of her, so he's looking through the camera box up at her because it's one of those old school cameras. So it's all 
looking at her through objects rather than actually seeing her. And I think that also helps when it comes to the idea of she's got a big secret that she's hiding and it's going to take a while for him to find it out. And he can't seem to actually look directly at her and see what she actually is. Instead, he's always got a layer between him and her. You don't want to look directly at this woman. What you want to do is punch a pinhole in the center of a piece of paper and watch her through that. But there's like a physical layer as well, isn't there? Because then when they do get married, she won't really touch it. Like she won't sleep with it. She just caresses his face, which is sweet, but also really perverse. Because they sleep in these adjoining bed, camp beds, they look like. And she'll just touch his face. That's all that's permitted. And you just think, this isn't going to go well. It did remind me a little bit of the man with two brains in that respect, but not as outrageous. The frustration. He's not. He's much more passive than Steve Martin in The Man with the Two Brains. Steve Martin's just raging, isn't he? He's ripping knobs off doors. But he does have that thing going on. You just think, this poor guy, he's just got married and she's, okay, not tonight. Here's your camp bed. Yeah, the theme of voyeurism is there all the way through. And in some ways, that's the sort of typical kind of le- lecturous male voyeurism, isn't it, that you see with Manchik's character. But it, there's also something very sad about that too, isn't it? Because it's that, yeah, like you say, it's that character who never participates he's always just on the outside looking in and he lives his life through movies through books and uh, yes it's about that sort of unattainability as well of the sort of dream woman even when she is like physically close to him and and i think also like you say it's the fact that he never sees something directly and i think that fits with the narrative too with the way that the narrative is told where there's this sort of constant elision, this is constant shifting from place to place. And a lot of the time, it's not quite clear like where you are, like when it shifts from the office to like the holiday location. I think that it's easy to get confused by that. I think there's viewing. The editing, and they do this in The Cremator, and I do wonder whether Hertz based his casting at least on on seeing that film. I don't know. But they do it in the cremator where a scene will start in one point and the character looks up and they're in another scene and it does that in this. So when he goes to that business conference, you just think he's still at the office for a while and you're like, hang on a minute. And then the boss comes into his room and you're like, why are there some sort of conference? Like, why is he in a hotel? And then when he gets married, one minute he's taking photos of this woman and he's drunk and he's on the bed and then he's like why is my mother here and he's getting married and it's a wonderful way to edit it it just makes it really confusing and brings you into his world which you never quite know what you're seeing because he's constantly also fantasizing about things but not in that obvious way like to go back to that stupid Walter Mitty reference. Like, oh man, is daydreaming? It must be that. And it's totally not that. I'd say more seven year itch than Walter Mitty if you want to go Hollywood. But yeah, it does give you this sense then of this is the thing with Czech cinema though from this period, isn't it? Anything is possible. So you can go through a murder and the character can look right into the camera and say, no, that's wrong. Let's go back. And there are things that are preparing us for a radical moment like that. Like you said, the whole, why is my mother crying? Why is Emil shaved? 
oh, this is my wedding. Yeah, he's like a passive observer, even at his own wedding. He's now I have to say something pretty important. <laughs> and then when the the wedding's over, Emil gives her a kiss, and then there's a freeze frame. And I was like, oh, this is odd. And then suddenly becomes this whole series of still shots of all of the post-wedding stuff. And I was like, okay, this is interesting, but this is great. Weiss is, is setting us up to show us, like, this is a very radical movie. You are not, I'm going to keep you off balance. So then when things like, yeah, this is all wrong, let's rewind the film. Okay. It still took me by surprise. I didn't expect that we were going to do that in this film, but all right. It fits. It fits with the tone of this movie. When it shifts to the, like, the holiday, like, they're in a sort of like a recreational cottage i think i would i would describe it as and i think that i guess it's confusing because of the way it's edited and i think also the context too because i think that was a specific thing that used to happen i think in czechoslovakia which it doesn't really explain but i think i think they used to the company would give vouchers to workers to take a holiday basically they would have these like holiday i guess if it was a, like a small enterprise it would be like a little cottage or if it was a bigger one they might have a, you know, like a big like house or a castle even or something like that but it would basically be it would be like a weird mix of a holiday and a kind of like a works outing so you would be like with your if you were i guess if you were a good worker or if you had the right connections or you'd done a kind of a political favor you would get a voucher and you would go on this type of vacation and it's funny because i think he says that yeah i got voucher but of course i got it for april so <laughs> on the one hand it's not summer so it's it's going to be raining and i guess also the idea of april fool is there as well the fact that he's being taken for a fool so he gets a, a holiday from his company but of course it's not it's not an ideal one you just know something is up from the get-go but especially after they get married and this is not 2023 this is 19 what 67 so when he's oh, it was really good that you kept your name. And I was like, oh, that's a red flag right there. <laughs> she doesn't stay with him. She goes back to the job in the other office. So she only comes out on Saturdays and Sundays, just spends one night. She gets the bed. He gets the cot. She just spends the one night. And then when they part every single time, it's a handshake or a holding hands. It's never a kiss. There's no passionate kisses in here. This is a very strict, chaste relationship. And you're like, okay, what's happening here? So we are really not too surprised when we find out that she's having an affair. And it's only for me, the real surprise is who she's having the affair with. And it's one of these oh, I can't make it out this weekend. I'll be there Wednesday. Whoops, something happened Wednesday. I'll see you the next weekend. And then luckily, Emil is there with his motorcycle and they drive over. So he is able to see what's going on. And again, it's him looking out the window, seeing her get out of a car. Seems pretty innocent, but that's when he finally realizes that something is up. Yeah, it's really sad because you get his version of it after they get married. You get the little bliss thing, which is supposed to be the honeymoon, where he's just helping with the laundry. And he gets back to the office and everyone thinks he's a legend. All the blokes there are like, well done, you. And he's everyone's suddenly interested in me, but it's not true. 
None of it's true. And he has to keep going to the train station with his little flowers or he's on the train holding her hand and she can't wait to get rid of him, but he just doesn't see it. So it is is so sad then when he finally twigs that he's been set up, (laughs) which is like the whole thing. Probably why he was given that voucher in the first place as well. You wonder, don't you, how much it was like planned in advance and how much of it was, yes. Yeah, because why is his boss in his room with him, suddenly becoming his comfortable? Does, doesn't he swap out for another guy as well? I think you're right, yeah. Like, why would the main boss be putting himself? He Wouldn't he have his own room? It's like, oh, no, I'm in here. And then he suddenly becomes, his, oh, I think you should talk to her. I think you should tell her. And you think, oh. He seems like a nice guy. No, he isn't. And there is a bit of a political, satirical edge there too, I think, isn't there, in that it's elite figures, it's the sort of the people who were better connected or the people who were the bosses. or the, He's a chairman, I think, isn't he, officially? And, yeah, they were the people who had the, the status and they were, the, I guess, the manipulators and the people who enjoyed the, the sort of the privileges it's the falsity as well of it because he's yeah don't call me chairman no official names and then in the next scene somebody says hello mr chairman and it's it's that sort of i did think to start with actually now you said that and going back to the film so there was a lot i didn't one scene i remembered was the first quote unquote murder scene with the crash helmet that was the thing that i remembered from it but when they're first at that place i thought are they at some sort of communist meeting because everyone's dressed in the same suits as well, and they're all in this little dining room, and then the chairman comes in, and everyone seems a bit on edge, and you think, what's going on? Is this some sort of some sort of communist meeting or some sort of political thing? And then you finally realise, no, he's his boss. But there is that strange undertone to it that when he first arrives at that place, that everyone is a bit on edge, that the chairman is coming. Which I think is probably accurate, because I think it was that typical sort of double-edged sword of the communist regimes where, on the one hand, yeah, you would get like a vacation, they would give you things, but on the other hand, there was an expectation of how you were meant to behave. And I, I believe at least in the earlier period of communism in Czechoslovakia, like when people would go on these kinds of retreats, I think there would be people like watching them and checking that their behaviour was in order and reporting on them if they'd done something a little bit naughty. And yeah, I think there is that implicit sort of level of surveillance or control as well there. The bosses feel that they deserve everything, even to sleep with your wife. Yeah. And you're just going to be have to put up with it. And this poor guy then on this futile project of trying to get this transfer and they're like oh we'll just make you we'll make you more of a boss at your office that's what needs but i don't want that i just want to be with my wife just let me be in the same office especially now that i suspect her of adultery then you have that weird situation with the sister don't you who she seems pretty nice when you see her but yeah you think like she must have been in on that as well and it's all this pretense isn't it oh i have my sister is living with me there's no spare room here, and I think everybody is implicated in, in one way or another. Also, this guy can get his oats. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, because even though you think, wow, it's her, she's going along with this thing, she's just as much of a mug because 
the whole thing is we doesn't want his reputation ruined or his marriage or whatever. So it's like, oh, we'll just set you up with someone respectable and then we can carry on our affair and you can pretend you're working away and it's not going to look as suspicious because she says she's been in this affair for seven years. Yeah, seven years. So it's like the legitimate and the illegitimate woman, which again goes back to Italian comedy and things like marriage Italian style where the Sophia Loren character in that is the illegitimate woman and you've got the legitimate woman. So there is this strange, even though very different cultures, there is a strange parallel between definitely a very similar sense of humour as well. So she is being made legitimate but only in in a facade to hide the illegitimacy. It's interesting to think about because in, in I guess in Italian comedy you understand it because it's Catholicism, it's all about it's, all of that comedy is about the hypocrisy of Catholicism men getting married but they're always trying to have affairs it, all of that stuff I wonder how that, because I don't know an awful lot, I always thought from watching the cinema and especially communism, everyone is a comrade. And there was this, almost like this egalitarianism to the society when it came to gender. Everybody works, everybody has a place. And you look at the film, and the Czech films are very different to Italian films in that sense. In The women often hold similar positions to the men and everybody. But then seeing, not to go too much off the point, but then seeing interviews with... Vera Hitilova, she was talking about how sexist it was working, which really surprised me because you look at it and you think there was much more of an equality there given how oppressive certain aspects of the society were. There's a weird equality there, or even progressive. Didn't women get the vote there a lot earlier on? And there was certain things going on in society, but then you've still got this very old-fashioned without religion I need to keep my mistress legitimized. It's an odd thing, really. That's a really fascinating area to look at, I think, because, yeah, I think you see both sides of that here because, yeah, I think, as you say, in theory, under communism, women were meant to be equal and they were meant to have the same opportunities in their careers. And I think you get a bit of a sense of that because the figure of Alice, she is, I think she's like a foreign correspondent or something like that she actually yeah she's like a valued employee isn't she They're like the boss bigs her up oh she speaks three languages and she does so you get an idea she's got like quite a high position in the company and yet i think in practice i think what people have said is that it did tend to replicate just the same old system where often the women have the kind of like lower status positions or they were paid less and the men were the bosses and it, i guess in in practice it just tended to come out as the same thing and one thing that this reminded me of although i guess it's not really emphasized a lot here was the scene when there's the scene when emil the vladimir menshik character i think you see it at least once where he just goes like coffee when he just demands coffee from the yamilka the woman in the in the office and I don't know if you've seen the the film by Agnieszka Holland it was a mini series that she made in I think 2018 or something like that called Burning Bush which is about the death of Jan Palak who was the student 
protester in Czechoslovakia at the time of the Soviet occupation. One of the really interesting things in that is that there's this sort of subtle detail throughout the series where you have these office places when it's, it could be like a in a court or in a newspaper office. And there's this sort of constant trope of like the male employees just saying to the, the female employees, oh, get me a coffee, make me some coffee. Obviously been planted in there deliberately just to show how that same old sort of sexism of men just ordering women around, it was still there really. And it's a little bit, it's not as emphasized here, but I think it's, you still get that sense really that women were just there to make the coffee and just that sort of casual harassment as well that uh, you see from the Emil character, from Menshik's character where he's just... They even see them spying on the woman because when the, one of the first scenes, the women come in and say, oh, you're disgusting. But then they do that whole thing. Oh, we're all going to laugh because this is banter to show that we've got a sense of humor about it. That wouldn't roll in 2023, but that was a lot of my earlier working life. Is but yeah, because you've got to have a sense of humor. There is that office politic in it. These, I just find it fascinating because I guess this idea of respectability under communism wasn't Catholic respectability, but it was still very fixated on the home and the family, beaten and everybody had to be perfect and wholesome. And, it was all about face, all about what people thought of you. And I guess neighbours would talk about neighbours and everyone was on edge. So they come up with this very elaborate plan just so this guy can carry on having an affair. You know, massive, elaborate, like you said, they bring in the sister. They've got poor old Big R there with the sad flowers at the thing and even giving him a promotion almost as a trade-off, although he doesn't know that. And just this whole madly orchestrated thing, which is so telling about Czech culture at the time, it does tie into what Hitilova was saying because she was talking about it was very difficult to make film as a woman because I had a child and so therefore I was expected to play the traditional role. And that surprised me because just all I know really of Czechoslovakian culture is through their cinema and a lot of those films present as quite progressive in terms of gender politics. And then you get something like this, which exposes the fact that it wasn't that progressive. It was all about that elite man. Everybody's tap dancing around this bloody chairman. The whole thing is for him, really. And then, of course, like in the fight, without going too far into the very ending, like the final sequence, that's sad too, isn't it? Because it's just replicating the same thing. It's not like he re- is his fantasy, and it's not like he, that represents like a different system or a different way of life. He just wants the same thing. He just wants to be in that position himself. It's like if you can't beat them, join them. Basically, it's almost like he just gives up. He just gives up. It's a very cynical ending, which I love. I do love a cynical ending, even though it's played out comically yeah there is a lot of cynicism in this even though parts of it are very whimsical and very sweet there's there is a cynicism in this you get that sense of that kind of uh, weird sort of communist consumerism too i think because again this was not something that was meant to be part of communist culture and yet when you see the car that the chairman is driving i think he has like a simca car which i think was a french car and then i think at the end 
the car that in the fantasy sequence that Bacconi uh, is driving was a, quite a kind of fancy deluxe type of Skoda, which I guess at one point, at least in Czechoslovakia, was a desirable car to have. And yeah, I think those there are those. Oh, totally. If you look at Ferrat Vampire, which is about a state of the art Mike might not get this, but Skoda were the joke of the UK in the 80s. And If you drove a Skoda, you were a joke. It was a hilarious if you owned a Skoda. And then if you look at Ferrat Vampire, it's supposed to be this state-of-the-art Knight Rider-type vampire car. And it's a bloody Skoda. It's a natural <laughs> Skoda. You're like, oh, my God. Skodas were big in Czechoslovakia. Clearly, they had a whole different cultural thing <laughs> skoda and larder they were like the lowest down. i think the only thing worse you oh could, god larders the only worst thing you could have would be a reliant robin in the three-wheeler but i didn't look at the time code to see when this happens but it feels like right around the middle of the movie you've got her leaving again and him running down the platform and it suddenly switches to slow motion of him running down the platform and he catches the train it gets on the train we just go back to the narrative after that but it introduces like is the rest of this movie a fantasy now or is this all real because this is really where things start to change we've got him shooting bb's at the picture of his boss he starts to make these plans he sends this telegram he steals a gun from the night watchman he buys emil's motorcycle from him he gets the whole motorcycle outfit he even has a fake mustache he looks like he looks like one of the bad guys from Oz take on me video where you know like he even has a wrench at one point yeah he does i love that because he tries to do the martin scorsese he tries to do that martin scorsese thing in taxi driver he's outside the apartment being menacing but he just looks ridiculous and then when the chairman goes away he can't even start the motorcycle I'm gonna and and his whole monologue is very determined and, and like you said, the whole tone switches because he is then anger. It's like all this anger that's coming out of all these years of being pushed around and ignored. But even that's weirdly passive aggressive. And when he tries to be outright aggressive, it's just ridiculous. So when he's outside the apartment, he's looking up and he's waiting. I think he's been standing there for seven hours waiting for them to come out of this thing. Then his bike doesn't start. Then he comes in, his gun doesn't work. And that guy's just like, what are you doing? Just get out. Calling the police. There's that great line where he says, try to plan a murder and being in this sort of like thriller type plot. It's actually very boring because it actually involves a lot of time waiting and you think, yeah, that that's what they mean by Czech style. This is the Czech, that kind of Czech observational comedy of the everyday, isn't it? I think that's creeping in there. Because he makes this reference to the fact that he gets his plan from watching films, doesn't he? Like he's watched a lot of thrillers. So this is his base point. And I'm really surprised he gets the keys, actually, because everything else, he just messes up. But he, then he gets seen twice. <laughs> it's just useless. Trying to get rid of his fingerprints. But even in that part, it's obviously it is a fantasy then because then he's, you know, we got to stop this. We got to stop this. Go back. I'm going to do it another way. And so then you get the other one. And then it, again, it's a different take on something like Divorce Italian style because you're very aware in that that Marcello is fantasizing 
about killing his wife. It's very clear that it's a fantasy. And the rest of that film is quite straightforward. And it's just funny. It's just funny that he imagines killing his wife. He is as pathetic, though, as the character here. But with this, it is, again, this constant messing around. Like, what is going on? What? My favourite part, though, is the bathtub funeral oh, yeah, thing. But he's going in that, in that thing with all the candles around. And to go back to your earlier point, Mike, it's, even though he's an observer at his own funeral, he's like commenting on who's there. And his colleagues are like, he was a very good office worker. And he's just sat there watching it all in a bathtub. I think you do see the woman, don't you, at the end, who was there at the beginning with him in the cinema, where he said, we never see this woman again. I think if I'm right, you do see in that funeral sequence crying. I didn't notice that. I didn't notice I'm that. not sure, but I, yeah, I kind of... Yeah, there is a woman crying. There's a, who is the woman? He, oh, I guess she did care for me. Or is that the wife? There's a few people at the funeral that they... You see them sat on their own. It's weird. They are, they're sat on their own on a chair and then the mother appears at the end of the aisle and everyone else is gone. And then someone else. There's so many little jumpy, weird little bits, but it's so typically Czech of this period, I think. Because he doesn't rewind the film just one time. He re- rewinds it a second time because he, once he, so he murders them in the boss's car after his assassination attempt fails and the boss just punches him and throws him out of the the house. He goes out and I guess it's loosening the brake cables or something. Right. And the car explodes in this beautiful fire and you've got, yeah, all the jaunty music and it's fantastic. And then next thing you know, he's there in the public square, everyone looking at him, and judging him, and he goes up onto the, the the gallows, and he's just like, "Why are you blaming me? It's her fault. It's her fault." <laughs> <laughs> and you have that the hangman who's got he's got like a sort of like a dinner jacket and like yes. white gloves, he looks like, like a waiter. Magician. Yeah, classic new wave type sort of imagery. I think that is it. Her coughing at the because when he gets out of the car, what he goes home like. He does the first murder, goes home, he's trying to hide his fingerprints, then he's home, then the cops turn up. You don't see what they say, and you think they're about to say, oh, we found your wife, which is how would they identify her so quickly? They've just been incinerated. But then he gets out of the car, and you think he's arriving at her funeral, because there's like a funeral bit. Then you notice he's in handcuffs. Then you notice, what are all these people doing here? Or is it because he was a chairman and it's a big public funeral? And then Hangman's noose appears. It's a huge crowd as well, isn't it? It's like a... Yes, massive. It's like the whole city are out to watch him. And those shots of the audience and just all those faces. It was just, I really like that. It is a wonderful scene. And then he suddenly says, no, this is... (laughs) Back. Turn it all back. back. And then the film literally runs backwards. And the audio's running backwards. And it's... Holy shit. And we go all the way back to them in bed the first night. We've got the caressing of the face and all of that. And then it's, okay, great. Now he knows everything. And he's, oh, I've got a perfect alibi, just like in the American films. And then he, like, fakes this heart attack. (laughs) Come back and see me at 730 in the morning. Uh, Meanwhile, I'll just take these pills here. And he 
pockets the pills. And he's just like, all right. And then next thing you know, he shows up at her place. And that's when we find out. He gets on a plane. Yes, he flies over Why there. Why does he get on a plane to go to Prague when he, he can just go? It's a train right away. It's not a plane right away. <laughs> he becomes a more adept kind of like thriller protagonist doesn't he with each rewinding i think like by this point yeah he's got it down performance changes here as well he becomes more akin to copper kingle from the cremator because he's more self-assured and he's actually quite threatening in the scene that comes after that you can just see the versatility of the actor absolutely in this because he goes from being absolutely like frank spencer levels of ineptitude even trying to throw this thing at the couple and it just got stuck in the water. stuck and to to this like quite sociopathic nasty guy who's gonna go and strangle his wife and doesn't feel out of place because it's him it's him it doesn't feel out of, i guess knowing him in the cremate and knowing him in 90 degrees in the shade we know what he's capable of now so I wonder what the performance went down at the time. But I think he's convincing as both, even though it's a, it's a, supposed to be a fantasy. Absolutely. Yeah, that's one of the things that I think makes him so special as an actor, that there were sort of various types of roles that he could just play perfectly. And yeah, I think one of them is this sort of this poor, downtrodden, middle-ranking official type figure. But then there's also the the sort of sinister character as well that he could do really well. And then there's the, I guess that sort of that more jovial, more kind of patrician type figure that you see in something like Capricious Summer, for instance, or even in Adela Hasn't Eaten Dinner Yet, where he's this more like earthy type of character. He's this sort of like life and soul of the party. And I feel in the sort of very last sequence where he takes over as the boss and he comes into the office and he just like sends everybody else out of the boardroom there you're seeing this other side of Hrushinsky, aren't you? You're seeing this is the sort of this Lord of Misrule type figure that he could do well. And yeah, he's just convincing in every single like incarnation and it just uses that so well, I think. It's so, obviously he was a very high status actor, I think, even at this point. And as far as I know, I don't think Vice ever thought of another actor for the roles. I don't think you could, though, could you? Because it's all about it's his physicality. It's what he looks like. Those it's... thick glasses he puts on. Yeah, like all of it. I couldn't imagine someone else in that. If you had Menseek in that role, he's brilliant. I always love it when he turns up in there. And I know we always talk about him on here. Anytime he makes an appearance, he's just so good. But someone like that, I couldn't imagine in that role. A lot of the prominent Czech actors from that time, they all had their types. Whereas old Big R, as they call him, one of his key roles, wasn't it the good soldier Schweig? Absolutely. Just playing this sort of idiot type. And then he could play a very intelligent and cold psychopath at the other end of the scale. So he was wonderful, but ridiculously prolific. I think I've probably only seen about 5% of his films. Cause he really... <laughs> and didn't he do theatre as well at the same time? They must have never, ever had a day off in 60 years or something ridiculous. And then he was part of the whole legacy of Krusinski's, right? Yeah, it's a big family. I think starting from, I think his, I'm not sure how far back it goes, but I know that at least his, he he came from, I think, a theatrical family. I think 
on both sides, I think. And then, yeah, his there are two sons, I think, that I know of. There's Jan Hrushinsky, I think was the name, who is the young guy in Girl on a Broomstick. And then there's Rudolf Hrushinsky Jr., who I think is in, you see him in Snowdrop Festival with Rudolf Hrushinsky. And then there's the grandson who is in, you know, the film Vampire Wedding from the sort of early 90s. He is, I would say, Rudolf Hrushinsky Jr., appropriately enough, being named after him. He looks the most like him. So it took me a while to figure out that the others were his children or grandchildren. But yeah, it is. Yeah, it's like a dynasty, basically, I think, of talented actors. Fitting, though, because in this, he ends up with a kid that doesn't look like him. I'd be curious if Vladismir Brodsky, if he could play a character I was thinking like of him. this. Because he's got the meekness down, and he can play a bastard pretty well. They can play a Nazi. Dupe he is in All My Good Countrymen. I really like him in that, too. But yeah, I, I agree. I don't think anybody but Krasinski could play this particular role. He does it so well. This is just right there in his wheelhouse. It did make me think a couple of times of, and it's good because I think we're doing this. This is another murder-related film, but it, it did make me think of Four Murders Are Enough, Darling, because I guess the protagonist of that, who I think is played by, I think it's Lubomir Lipsky, who is the brother of Olgic Lipsky. I think he's playing the main character in that. And he's also a kind of a similarly type of nebishy figure who just lives his life through comic books. And it did remind me a little bit of that. And I think like you said, like Kat said, I think there is that kind of connection to the sort of Czech comedy or parody films. And one interesting thing I found out was that I think Jerzy Weiss was even offered the chance to direct Lemonade Joe at one point, but he turned it down because I think he just felt it was not his type of movie. And yet he said that, yeah, I wanted to be Balzac. I wanted to make serious films about society. And yet in this film, you do see him doing, I think in a way he's doing both really, because I think you do have the, the, there is still, I think, a kind of a grounding in a real character and a real situation, and you get all the sort of poignance of that. But then you also get all the fun of the, yeah, that sort of Czech parody, don't you, of the play, playing up the kind of genre elements at the end. And I guess the reversing of the film, it's anticipating something like Happy End, isn't it, really? Which I think was made, I think, probably around the same time, or maybe that was made a little bit after this, but. Yeah, I think you see a lot of those similar types of techniques. It's fascinating because he was a lot older than all of the other new wave figures and even older than people like Yasny or Brinik. I mean, he was born, I think Weiss was born in like 1913 or something like that. And so he was at least two generations older than the new wave. And yet here, he is making a new wave film, I think. It's totally a new wave film. I think it's absolutely in that style, isn't it? Anticipates so much. It's right in the midst of that, using all these experiments. That's the thing I love about the Chetney wave is it's not so much this sort of montage of cinema like the French new wave. They're bringing in all these other different things from literature, from art, from all these, from a specific sense of humour, like Jonathan says, that, this observation or these very fastidious, weird characters that you find in Dostoevsky or Kafka a lot. And so it's very specifically of Eastern Central Europe. And that's what they're drawing from. And they're just having a hell of a lot of fun with it. They're like, what can we do with this film? Let's chop it up. Let's 
rewind it. Let's keep breaking the fourth wall. Because I guess in one way, a lot of those directors at FAMU, which the director wasn't here, did get exposure to certain Western films. A lot of them were working in their own, just their own total little bubbles. This period especially, the experimentation, just the fun they were having, I think. That's why I don't understand people that have got no interest in Czech film. I don't know if they just think, oh, it's be like Bergman, dour Swedish people in black and white, or it'll be very political. And yes, of course, some of these films are very political, but always done in this very avant-garde way, where you will never not be surprised by it. You you can't ever second-guess Czech 60s film, can you? I definitely knew that we were in for a color change once we get... Oh, the color change. <laughs> we get to him going to murder his, to, to murder Alice, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. It's more like a black and bluish than a black and white. So, I don't know. If they, when they put this out on Blu-ray, I almost hope that they do redo the color grading on the black and white part, so the color becomes a real surprise at the end. It was like when you're watching Schindler's List, and it's okay, this film stock changed. I don't know exactly how. And then it's, oh, there's the little girl in the red dress. Okay, so this is color film now, but it's been desaturated. So it's very much that for the last bit of this film until we suddenly switch to color. But right before that, we get the rewind of the film after he murders his wife. No, this isn't good. We go back to the bathtub. We get that amazing bathtub floating into the church type scene oh so good and then it's you know what no i'm not gonna do this i'm gonna get out out of this tub i'm very woozy from all the gas that's been in here and then i'm gonna run down and go into the chairman's office burst in and then i love how he sits the chairman down and he sits at the chairman's desk and he's just like, okay you're gonna listen to me now and then in the voiceover it's what we discussed is none of your business. And I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's even taking the high hand with the viewer too, isn't it? It's, yeah, I'm in charge now. <laughs> then we switch to color and we get to see him now. He's the branch manager, Meek, and the office girl we saw earlier is there bringing him coffee and sitting on his lap and giggling. And it's, oh, so now he's having the affair. All right. Not today, sweetie. And then pick this up on Monday. And then he's in a car now with Alice. And there's a child in the car. The music is this angelic choir going on. And then he tells us in uh, voiceover, he's just, oh, that, that kid, that's our little Carla. She doesn't look like me, but uh, all kids are beautiful. And then the car fucking flies off into the distance like an American hippie in Israel. And you're just like... Okay, wow, I couldn't believe that this ended with a flying car. What a movie. It is wonderful. Oh. It is so wonderful. Again, people are like, oh, I don't watch subtitle films or Trek films. No interest. It's, look at what you're missing out on flying cars and all this. Christopher Nolan wouldn't give you that, I think. It would be in a very po-faced way, I think, wouldn't it? I think it, it wouldn't be just that. It's just that light. It's the light touch, isn't it? It's just, yeah, we can do anything and it's fun and it's just live. It's just throw away. Last two minutes, we're just going to have a flying car. We're just going to go into colour. After we've rewound the film two times and 
had a uh, a flying bathtub at a funeral. Well, it's not really flying. It comes in. That's amazing the way that the, the tub It's an comes amazing in. shot, though, because the camera pans up to it, and it's all these candles, and it's, like, floating in the air. And you just see his little shoes at the end because he's still sat in it over this massive... It looks like this very ostentatious funeral thing. And you just think, God, this needs to be restored. Oh, yeah, please. There's certain shots in this film that are incredible, but that one. even And it's a ludicrous image as well, but it's also really beautiful at the same time. How about when she he's there waiting seven hours for her, and she comes down, gets in the car, kisses the boss, but the boss is a fucking skeleton? Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. And it's just, yes, that few seconds, isn't it? It's just really throw away. But yeah, I think a reason why the film is like neglected is that I guess basically Vice was more or less at the end of his career, really. I think he didn't after he, because I guess he left Czechoslovakia, I think in 68, I think after the invasion, he just basically taught film, I think after that. I think he made a couple more things, but this was really coming to the end of his career. And I think this part of his career in the 60s tends to be written off a bit, really. And people tend to think of the mid to late 50s as his kind of glory years, like his greatest period, which I guess he's not... I would say, personally, I think Romeo, Juliet and Darkness is hugely considered to be his masterpiece. And I would say probably... That's fair enough. But yeah, there's so much that people are missing if they don't look at this period too, because yeah, he was a lot older than the other filmmakers, but he was still able to produce this kind of like wonderful, I don't like to say lighthearted, but this kind of very free-spirited type of filmmaking. He was able to do that as well. It's so different to Romeo and Juliet as well. We wouldn't think it was the same director, but it's not Criterion approved though. We can only watch Criterion approved chat films now. Is that right? Is that the new rule? It's that whole thing, isn't it, where you've got a few directors that are suddenly hip now. It's okay. And it's like they seem to be all of Czech cinema. It's something that's started to bug me now because there's other stuff that maybe isn't as political or it's not the famu lot, but bloody hell, people are missing out. Obviously, Second Run are very dedicated to that, also the other side of Czech cinema. This is a really good example of it made slap bang in the middle of the new wave, but it doesn't have, you know, the usual names tag to it. And it's not really a political metaphor. It's more of a, just a fun, I don't think you could ever call a a Czechoslovakian film commercial, but it's comedy, it's more fun, isn't it? It's more whimsical. It's not a statement film. And so there is a tendency now that it's wonderful that more people are paying attention to Czechoslovakian film now. I think that's a beautiful thing. But it does tend to be, same with French film. It's all around a few French filmmakers. And yeah, so I don't really like those labels in that respect. I'm saying New Wave because obviously it was a Czech New Wave, but... Once something becomes new wave or not, and part of a movement or not, then a lot of this stuff is falling by the wayside. I would love to see this restored. But we're now at the stage where the same Czech films are now getting the 4K upgrades. And it's, what about all the rest? 
This was supposed to be the floodgates opening. <laughs> we're already at the point where we're restoring the same films now. That's not how it's supposed to work. And like you say, it's only really you're only really getting part of the picture, I think, if the focus is always on the new wave or the yeah, the art cinema in, in, in quote marks. Yeah, and obviously I love those films, don't get me wrong, but I think some of my most favourite Czech cinema is all sort of stuff that we do on here is the Leapsky comedies, even the post-Prague Spring stuff, because they're so absurd. It's this whimsical fantasy stuff like this. It's the fairy tales. And, of course, I adore the key Czech new wave stuff as well. But my personal favourites, ones that I will come back to time and time again, are these like little gems like this. Because they are more, I guess they're less of statementy. And they're far more whimsical and therefore a lot more fun. I love Diamonds in the Night, but Jesus Christ. (laughs) Whereas if you watch something like this, it's like Mike was having the time of his fucking life over there. That makes me happy. (laughs) I think that in any case, that sort of hard distinction of like art cinema versus genre cinema, I think in any case is... It's very questionable. It needs to go. It needs to and go. And I think in this case particularly because, yes, a lot of those so-called genre films or, or you know, commercial comedy films, they are in their own way just as adventurous and just as formally playful. If you look at something like Lemonade Joe or something like Happy End, those are doing like really avant-garde things with the visuals and with the narrative, but they're doing it with a slight tongue-in-cheek or they're doing it in a sort of light-hearted spirit, but that is formalist as well in its own way. I get that's a good point, actually, Jonathan. I guess it does come more into genre, and I guess that's always the thing, isn't it? If something's genre, then therefore it's not as much art, which is questionable with Czechoslovakia because it's all bloody state-funded, and I would say a lot of it comes under art cinema, even if it was more quote-unquote popular genres it's still not really being made for commercial profit is it it's hardly like hollywood (laughs) go back to christopher nolan or someone these were hardly being made to be blockbusters were they so that so there was i guess there was a lot more freedom during that period for filmmakers to take risks that you couldn't in hollywood because i want to make a a romance murder drama the car what happens at the end car flies off he's got another man's kid in it but it's fine because he's got his own fuck piece at the office they'd be like no that's never gonna happen in czechoslovakia this somehow comes into that sort of family bracket is it like a family you know what i mean though there's that whole slate of comedies that they're kind of transgressive when you look at them but they would have been shown to mainstream audiences when you look at something like You Are a Widow, Sir, or uh, is it I Killed Einstein, Gentleman, where you have that beginning and you have the kind of the women with the beards. The women with the beards. Have <laughs> we done that one, Mike? I, I don't, don't think, think we, we have, have no. Oh, we have to do that. That's so much it fun. It is, yeah. And I'm so glad that Deaf Crocodile is now getting into the mix and they're restoring Mysterious Castle and the Carpathians and... They just did, what, Prague Nights? At least they're finally getting in there, too. There's, I would say, oh, boy, 
don't mess with second run, but it's uh, there's plenty of Czech films for everybody. We could have three or four God, companies so many. putting them out. And there is- oh yeah, yeah. One of the really I think like overlooked things about the '60s in Czechoslovakia was that. I guess you had that liberalization and that kind of internationalization in the 60s because of the political changes. And obviously that meant a big benefit for like art cinema and for directors who wanted to be more politically engaged and more artistically experimental. But another side was of that was that this meant interest in like genre and genre diversity. And so I think one, the other side of the 60s film culture was this attempt to create a kind of like a domestic genre cinema because I guess that had also been frowned upon in the earlier period because it was considered as too American or too commercialized to make horror films or to make detective stories. So you do, I guess it doesn't have quite the same status. It doesn't quite achieve the same heights as some of the other types of films, but you do see Czech crime films. Prague Nights is a really good example where they're trying to make it's, it's like an amicus or a hammer style horror anthology. And so those are really, yeah, really overlooked actually, I think. And that, yeah, that does deserve recognition. I think there was something that I was thinking about in relation to this was that I think in the late sixties, there was this, I think at least there were at least two crime films with Hrushinsky playing a d- detective actually. And they're like a sort of Maigret style police procedural type of movie. I think I've seen one of those. I can't think. What's it called? I always forget the name of them. I've got them written down. I think I've seen one of those. That sounds really familiar. It was a crime in a musical, was it? Uh, that was one of them. Yeah, there was Mur- Murder of His Face was one of them, and then Traces of Blood was the other. These were like late 60s. And then Injik Polak, who did... Tomorrow I'll wake up and scold myself with tea. He he did a, a few of them as well, I think. And there's one in the late 70s that he made called Death of Hitchhikers, which is quite grisly, really. It's quite a surprising film to have come from Czechoslovakia, especially at that time, which was quite a sort of politically kind of repressive time. But yeah, there were attempts to make, I guess, this type of film. There's also a film by Hertz from, I think, the mid-70s called A Girl Fit for Killing, which almost has a bit of... Jal, I know that's an overused <laughs> word, but a bit. <laughs> I was going to mention his sign of cancer, actually. Oh, sure. I, did, I just did something on it for my patron and I called it a Czech Jallo. We, we can say the G word. You're right. As close as they can get to a Jallo because they're slightly more restrained in what they could show and what was permissible. But then sometimes not. Sometimes you get nudity and stuff where you wouldn't expect it. And you think, oh, Sign of Cancer is a great example because I think that was the one where he did actually, he got the chance to go to Italy and to, he had to cut out some of the nude scenes, I think, for the Czechoslovak. I think the Barrendov Studios told him to remove it, but then he got that kind of cope, that kind of deal with Morris Ergas and Carla Ponti. And so he got the chance to go to Rome and to like reshoot them. So I guess that does have an actual sort of Italian participation in it yeah there's a there's an interesting connection this is why i was wondering about this uh, the czech style thing is this is to go back to a couple of things you were saying actually jonathan one is this consciously trying to emulate other 
country's films maybe be slightly more commercial. Here they are making a direct reference to Italian comedies. And then you see someone like Ponty add his hand in Czechoslovakian film around this. I know this wasn't anything to do with him. But you wonder this weird cross-pollination between two countries that you wouldn't think. One's in the Soviet bloc. Italy have got out of fascism. It is a bizarre side note parallel thing, but they are clearly selling this as marriage Italian style or whatever. And of course, then the Italians would do that. They would things off. They would do with the Toto films, whatever happened to Baby Toto. They would rip off like Hollywood films and Hollywood titles. So it's way so weird. That how it comes down to Czechoslovakia. And I'm just wondering where, like, who made that very deliberate reference and what that would have meant to the audiences at that time. Were they seeing that many international films at that point? We even see him actually in the film and he tells us he's seen international, he's in the Hollywood thrillers or whatever. Yeah, it's even commenting on cinema, (laughs) commercial cinema in a way. Yeah, that's a really good question, I think. It's one that comes up in in relation to some of the parodies because, yeah, you have parodies of things like Westerns or the James Bond thrillers, and this is at a time when a lot of the audience wouldn't really have seen a James Bond movie or, or they may... I guess a lot of the time they were remembering maybe like older versions of those genres. Like, I guess that's where the Nick Carter figure comes in Dinner for Adela because I guess that was like an older model of like detective story that that maybe older Czech viewers would have been aware of. And yeah, for me, that's always a, yeah, a really fascinating question. Would this have had any relevance to the audience? Would they have even have seen like a Pietro Jeremy film or Vittorio De Sique? Why something so weirdly specific? By the mid-60s, I think, yeah, they would have been. I think that, yeah, because the liberalisation starts around sort of 63, I would say, when, you know, you get the first new wave films and this is 66. Yeah, I think it would have been in the air then. I think people would have been seeing at least the European, Western European thrillers. James Bond were a little bit off limits because there's that whole Cold War. Especially with all the anti-communist stuff. (laughs) Unless they redubbed it all to make the... (laughs) Change the sides. Comrade James. Which makes me think, wasn't there... And I'm getting mixed up because I think it, was, uh, it wasn't it was Krasinski, it was Jan Berig, wasn't it, who was offered... Or who was, I think, screen-tested for the role of Blofeld, but he was considered not... I was just trying to remember, was that Krasinski or was it Jan Berig? It would have been a greatest... It would have been a better anecdote if it was Krasinski, but yeah, it was Jan Berig, I think, and I just thought he was too cuddly. And <laughs> Krasinski would have worked, I think, though, as he would have been a great bomb villain. Oh, yeah. It'd be so charming and then just turn it right around. He would have been a good goldfinger, I think. I think that purring, that kind of resonant voice would have worked so well, wouldn't it? As, although you would have had to speak English. But <laughs> We were talking about him speaking English in, with 90 degrees in the shade, right? But I think it was like, yeah, phonetically. And then he just would, I guess, the sort of the Italian thing again with, the dubbing where I think he would just say it phonetically in English. And then of course it was dubbed by English actor. 
You lose that wonderful voice. <laughs> Took away our voice. I know there's certainly weird certain foreign actors I couldn't deal with being dubbed, and he's one. And Marcello Mastroianni is another. And I remember not to go too off the point, but some guy saying that he'd heard about an English dub of the Dolce Vita, and he was like, oh, this should be restored. And that should never be. I would never want to watch that. So I did watch one film where Marcello was dubbed, and it was a very disturbing experience. It's certain actors, no actors should be dubbed really, but I think some voices become, and Horinsky is definitely one. His voice is so great. Like Jonathan said, that like purring quality to it. It can go either way. It can be like passive aggressive. It can be very sinister times. Or it can be fun. It can be warm as well, depending on his character. He was just so great at everything. I can't imagine like an English because I'm thinking of the one in 90 Degrees, which just sounds a little too refined or it's a little too... It doesn't have that kind of earthiness somehow, and he's able to somehow pull off that balance where he can do refinement, but it doesn't never seems affected somehow. He can also be earthy, and he can be this kind of man-of-the-world type figure as well. And uh, I can't imagine an equivalent, really, in a kind of English-speaking context. Maybe I'll ever read, I don't know, but... <laughs> I don't know. Oliver Reed was too. He only had Moody 1 and Moody 2. Oliver Reed. <laughs> we're going to take a break and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. Taková přesnost. Dokonce o deset minut přesnější. That's right. The three of us will be back next week as we look at Esther Krambakova's The Killing of the Engineer Devil, a.k.a. The Killing of Mr. Devil. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Kat and Jonathan. So, Kat, it has been a while. What have you been up to? So, yeah, I've been doing some Blu-ray production. I've been doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes, obviously working with you on Jacob's Ladder for Imprint. I've done a bit for Severin. I'm working on a, another set for them at the moment. We did the Danza Macabre, Gothic, Italian Gothics. For, for that, so there's a lot of stuff at Radiance. The Damiani box sets just come out 
that was one that I did. Oh, my God, there's just been so much. I can't remember the last time I was on this show. I was still doing my Patreon as well, but then on, and then obviously even more niche than talking about obscure Czech comedy films. I now have a total other project that's not film related, which is talking about ADHD on a podcast and on YouTube called ADHD Wild Women, which is probably like applicable or interesting to about 0.2% of people. But yeah, I've been doing a a lot of, of that stuff and psychology and stuff like that. So it's been pretty crazy. And I just wrapped up producing a massive box set for Arrow, which is, it's going to, people are going to think it's insane. And I don't think it's going to be announced by the time this podcast comes out. So I won't say what it is, but yeah, that's kept me busy, busy. And Jonathan, how about yourself? I'm really happy to mention something that I've probably referred to a few times, but this is finally being published now and it's a contribution that I made to a collection of essays about Barendorf Studios and I have a a chapter in that on Your I Hurts and his relationship with Barendorf and I think this is coming out in October this year and it's going to be called the Barendorf Studios Central European Hollywood and it looks like a really wonderful collection there's some really good pieces by a lot of really, really good British and American and Czech and Slovak scholars as well on various filmmakers and various periods of Barendorf's history. So, yeah, I'm really uh, happy to have been part of that. I've also contributed to another collection, which is on global cult cinema. And so I wrote a piece on Czech comedies for that about Czech parodies basically in the 70s and 80s and i think that probably will be coming out from bloomsbury maybe next year i think maybe early next year i've also got a few other commentaries and booklets in the works some of those i think have not been announced yet but i think they are czech and slovak and polish titles it won't won't be a big surprise i think coming from me look out for some of those Thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Či z lásky nebo ze zvyku, dnes prší, jak mám s tebou jít, bez důkladného dešníku. Milý však chodí po je roztržitý zákazní, místo nového dešníku, svátku mi koupil sluneční, můj slunečník je z bambusu. A růžového hedvábí Schová nás oba do stínu Který dopadl do trávy Dívám se, dívám do nebe A luštím barev otazní Proč sebou vše je růžové 
když se zavře slunečník. Když se zavře sluneč 